Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've just spent the last week fighting, fighting infection, anxiety, fighting tears and fears, fighting depression and disappointment, fighting temptation, fighting our old nature, and sometimes fighting each other fighting for ourselves, for our own way to get what we want. Our text this morning reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we stand on a field of battle, a field of battle in which the great fight has been fought and the great victory has been won. We stand in this world this broken, hurting world, we stand on the field of battle on which Christ Jesus has won the victory. And in him, we are more than conquerors. And yes, there are still skirmishes with the leftovers of the enemy. As the enemy has been dealt a mortal wound, a head wound, and his power has been largely destroyed, and we've been set free from all the power of the devil. There are still the death throes of the enemy that we deal with. And he's still dangerous, just like a snake that's dying can still cause some grief. There are still pockets of resistance from the enemy. But the victory is sure. In our text this morning, the Holy Spirit calls us to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, to keep all of our struggles in perspective, and to be on the right side, to fight against sin and not with it or for it. Timothy, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, was written shortly after Paul was released from imprisonment in Rome. You remember at the end of the book of Acts, he spent two years living with his Roman guard in a rented place, and he was able to teach and preach and receive people in that house arrest under which he was for two years. Paul knows what it is to be isolated, to be stuck in your home, to be locked down. He did it for two years. Then he was, during that time, he, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians when he was in, in prison in Rome. And you remember, of course, what he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, where in that letter to the church at Ephesus, he had told them to put on the armor of God and to fight with the sword of the Spirit, and to fight not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities and the forces of evil and darkness. That letter had been sent to the church at Ephesus just a few years ago, and now Timothy's there as a missionary, and Paul is reminding Timothy to to do his ministry in that spirit, to fight the good fight, to fight the real enemy, which is sin 
and the forces of darkness. So Paul was in, in Rome, under, uh, he was imprisoned, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he was released probably around the year 62 AD. He most likely went off to Spain and did some other travels, and now when he writes this letter to Timothy, he's, he's writing from Macedonia, that's in the north of, of Greece there. And he's writing it to Timothy and Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It's in Asia, Asia Minor. And so this is a great missionary writing to one of his colleagues who is responsible for the area of Ephesus and its surroundings. And look how he presents himself. Paul, an apostle. Apostle simply means someone who is sent. And so that can mean broadly, anyone who is sent with any task. But here he's speaking about the word apostle in the strictest and most defined sense, its narrowest sense, as one who has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is an eyewitness to the resurrection. Paul is one of those who can testify to the truth of the resurrection. And so he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, by command. That's a really strong word. It's the, it's the word which would be used when the government would put a sign on a building and say, by order of the king, by order of the emperor, by order of. It's an official command. Paul is not like his opponents who just kind of rose up and anointed themselves and said, hey, we're leaders. Paul has been called by God himself, by order of the king of kings. He is an ambassador. He speaks in the name of God, and he is aware of his office. So his authority comes from God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. God and Christ spoken in the same breath because Christ is God. He calls God our Savior, in Ephesus, the people living there at that time in the Roman Empire, they would have known that the Greeks called Zeus our savior. Zeus our savior. The Roman god was called savior. And the emperor was also called savior. And so Paul says, no, God is our savior. And Christ is our hope. This is a clear claim to the unique power of God in a world which looked to false gods and looked to the state for hope and for salvation. The time that this letter was written, there had already been in Ephesus for many years the cult of the emperor, the worship of the emperor. He was worshipped as a god and had been for a long time in Ephesus and throughout Asia. And Paul, when he introduces himself, makes clear that there is only one god and he is to be worshipped and he has all authority. And he writes to Timothy, verse 2, my true child in the faith. The word true there would be written on adoption certificates, 
where the certificate in the ancient world would say, this person is now your true child. In the eyes of the law and the community, your real son or your real daughter. So Paul speaks to his spiritual child, the one whom he has mentored as a father in Christ. But more than that, my true child in the faith, a true son of God, a true man who stands in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And this is in contrast to the people he's going to talk about in a few minutes. This is in contrast to these false teachers who are not true sons of God, true sons in the faith. So he writes to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, God the Father, Christ in the same breath. God, the Father is God. God the Son is God. Grace, mercy, and peace, he writes. Grace is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word chesed. And the Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament to describe the covenant, faithful love of God towards his people. And mercy is another Greek word, a translation of another Greek word, which is also used in the Old Testament Greek translation to describe that same covenant and faithful love of God. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Well, grace is when God gives us favor, which we don't deserve. And mercy is when he doesn't give us the punishment, which we do deserve. Those are the two sides of his covenant faithfulness. He pours love and goodness upon us, favor upon us, which we simply have not merited. That's grace. And he takes away from us all the sin, all the guilt, and all the punishment we do deserve. That's mercy. And those two things together are his covenant, faithful love towards us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace, writes the apostle. And peace in the Hebrew is shalom. It doesn't just mean that there's no war going on, but it is a state uh, in which Everything is well between two parties. What does Paul write to the Romans? If you turn to Romans 5 for a second, verse 1, look where the peace comes from. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the peace comes from. The blood that Christ shed on the cross washed away our sins, took away our guilt, and restored us into communion with God so that when we come into God's presence as we are now, we're not all shy and scared and hiding behind the nearest door. Because we're ashamed, that's all gone. That's all washed away. There is peace between us and God because we are justified. We are righteous, declared righteous because of Jesus and his merits, and his holiness, and his payment for our sin on the cross. And so the apostle can speak peace to Timothy and through him to the church. This letter is a letter to Timothy, but it was meant to be read in the church. And he writes to the church 
Well, he writes to Timothy, who is at Ephesus. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, Ephesus at that time was the New York of Asia Minor. It was a big city. It was a bustling city. It was a powerful city. It was a rich and wealthy city. There was all kinds of culture and, and art, and there was all kinds of uh, business going on there, and trade. It was a, a very, very important hub in the ancient world, one of the biggest cities at that time. The theater in Ephesus could seat 24,000 people. When we want to watch a hockey game, when we're able to here in Edmonton, I think we can seat 17,000 people. Almost 2,000 years ago, they had 7,000 more seats there in Ephesus. And Paul had spent time here. You can look, at, look it up in, later after the, the service. In Acts chapter 19, we, we read about him being in Ephesus and, and working there a very long time for Paul. He stayed there for two years. And and through his work in this <coughs> hub city, this very, very important city, the Word of God went into all of Asia, to all the surrounding area. People heard the Word of God through Paul's work many years ago. Now, what would you expect from Paul? He's just been released from two years of house arrest in Rome. What would you expect him to be talking about? with Timothy, who's living in a city where the emperor is worshipped, <clears throat> where there's all kinds of wrong things going on. Does he talk about government overreach and the lack of freedoms for citizens? Does he speak about the two years of lockdown and isolation, which just isn't right and isn't fair, and, and why did this happen to me? Is that what we're seeing here in this letter? Paul doesn't mention that. Paul talks about Christ. That's his job. That's his calling. That's his office. That's his focus. That's his life. Paul looks to Christ. Paul preaches Christ. Paul will know nothing else. He says, listen, Timothy, there are people, look at verse 3 and 4, there are people that are teaching different doctrines. You've got to charge them, and that's the same word, we have in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command. You've got to give these people an order in the name of the King of Kings. By order of the King, King Jesus, you must not teach these things. What are they teaching? Well, they're teaching, look at verse 4. They're devoting themselves not to Christ, but to myths and endless genealogies, speculation. Stuff which just gets people going and arguing. If this would have, if, if Facebook would have exist, existed back then, they would have had a Facebook group and they would have been arguing with one another in the comment section about all this stuff. And Paul says, all this is useless. It doesn't promote the stewardship from God that is by faith. And the word stewardship 
is a reference to good administration, good order. This letter is written to Timothy to help him as a missionary encourage the local pastors of the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches to organize the life of the church in decency and good order for the glory of God. And Paul says, listen, the, the things these people are teaching, they don't promote decency and good order. They don't promote the good order in the church, which reflects the character of God. Now, we sang Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 was written a long time before 1 Timothy was written. There's nothing new under the sun. There have always been people like this. We sang, and if you read Psalm 10 later on, it describes somewhat the type of people, the type of people these are that, they, they, that teach myths and, and genealogies. There are people that are deceived and are deceiving. They, there's no Christ in what they have to say. There's lots of rules. You got to think like me. You got to act like me. If you don't think this, you're not a good child of God. If you don't do that, you're not a good child of God. If you're a real Christian, you have to think and act like me. You just flip the page, if you've got your Bible open still, 2 Timothy 2.16. Kind of describes a little bit of these people. 2 Timothy 2 verse 16. Where the apostle says, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Seeing that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. This Hymenaeus is mentioned at the end of our, our chapter this morning. He's mentioned there in verse 20. They're babbling stuff. And this stuff, because it isn't Christ, this stuff leads not to holiness, not to faith, but it leads to ungodliness. It unsettles the communion of saints, this false teaching. It's like gangrene. It spreads and it, and it kills the members of the body that are infected with it. So, Paul says, Timothy, you have to charge these people by order of the king of kings. You have to stop this. And why am I giving you this charge? Is Paul giving this charge to Timothy because he says, hey, Timothy, our church believes this, 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 and this. This is our confession. This is our catechism. And people that say things in a different way, they're bad. We have to keep our brand of Christianity, and we have to reject everyone else. Is that, is that what Paul's saying? No. Look at what Paul's saying. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is what? It's love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what Paul wants for God's people. Paul isn't sitting here saying, hey, you have to have all the theological I's dotted and T's crossed or else you're a bad person. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, you need Christ. And when people are coming with all kinds of babblings that don't point to Christ, then there's no love. And there's no pureness of heart. And there's no good conscience. And there's no sincere faith. And that's a problem. 
Because that means there's no God in these people's lives. No fake religion can give you a clean conscience. Fake religions either pile guilt on you and force you to work and to work and to work to try to be better, to try to say to God, I I know I've done bad things, but I've done some good things as well, and I hope that there are more good things than bad things. And so false religions, which are legalistic, they force you to clean the Aegean stables of your sin. An impossible task. It's never finished unless the river of Christ's shed blood washes through those stables and washes away your sin forever. It's Christ only who can do it. And other fake religions, they, they tell you to medicate your guilt, to cover it up by indulging in lust and, and in mind-altering substances and, and the pleasures of this world. No fake religion can offer love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's eminently evident in the latest fake religion, false religion, which has risen up in our times, the religion of the woke, the religion of intersectionality. In that religion, there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. There is just guilt, guilt, oppression, more guilt, and it cannot be atoned for. There's no redemption. Now, the kingdom of darkness comes with a variety of strategies and tactics, comes with a variety of disguises and camouflage. The devil can dress himself up in all kinds of ways, but you can always tell. You can always tell. Because in the false religions of this world, there is no grace, there is no mercy, there is no peace, there is no love, there is no faith, there is no hope, and there is no good conscience. And because they offer only despair and only misery, Therefore, Paul is charging Timothy to tell people to stop spreading this gangrene. If you look through our chapter 10 times, you have the word faith or words related to faith, faithfulness. What Paul is pointing to is that glorious gift, that gracious gift that God gives to us by his Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit works in us through the word, that gift which unites us to Christ, which binds us to him, that gift by which the love of God is poured into our hearts, the gift by which we have a good conscience before God because we have been justified by faith. Christ's merits are our merits. Christ's death is our death. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. The blood of Christ has washed away our guilt, our shame, our sins. 
We owe nothing to God. We have shalom. We have peace with God. We are God's children, not God's enemies. And Paul says, Timothy, that's what the church has to teach. That's what the church has to hold on to. That's got to be the main focus of the church. And when the church and its members start getting caught up in all kinds of discussions about all kinds of stuff, which is kind of tangentially related to the Bible and to the gospel, but which is the form of religion and and denies the power of it, then the church is going to be hurting. And that's what's happening with these people. Look at verse 6. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. They think they know what they're talking about, but they are teachers without understanding. In this case, in this time, these people in Ephesus, they're reading genealogies and they're reading Jewish commentaries on the genealogies in the Old Testament scriptures. And they're coming up with all kinds of weird and wonderful ideas and getting all wound up about them and convincing one another about them and focusing on their strange ideas. And you can tell. You can tell when people miss the plot. You can tell when people have lost sight of Christ and when they're using the Bible for their own ends. You can tell by the arrogance that they despise people who don't think like them, who don't have their esoteric knowledge. You can tell by the ungodliness. Look at 2 Timothy 3 for a second, describing these same people. 2 Timothy 3 verse 2. Look what they're like. They're lovers of self. Paul says this is going to get worse in the future, but they're here already. They're lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Well, these guys were pushing was the QAnon conspiracy theories of Paul's day. And, and the, the danger of these kinds of things is that they say some things which are true. They were referring to the scriptures. And that's the, that's the poison, that's the danger. Because some of the things they say are true. And so they lure people away from the gospel of Christ. And Paul says, look what these guys are doing. They're talking about the law. They're talking about the genealogies and they got their own understanding of it. And we know, we know that the law is good. But the law is good when you use it lawfully. These guys aren't doing that. The law is not a stick to go hitting the church with, to go hitting the blood-bought congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ with to make them feel guilty. That's not what the law is for. The law is for the lawless and the disobedient, for people who are living a life of sin and hatred against God and against Christ. They need to hear 
the severe warnings of the law, the thundering from Mount Sinai, sinner, repent, flee from the wrath to come. But that's not the gospel. That's, that's, got to, that's a truth which has to be taught to point people to the gospel, but it's not the gospel. And this, these false teachers were just kind of stuck in this law talk, telling everybody that they were wrong, telling everybody how bad they were, and losing sight of Christ. And so we see in the next verses, 9 and 10, we see a list of, of sins. And if you look carefully, you see that it follows the, some of the commandments, especially the second table of the law. We see the fifth commandment there, those who strike or, or kill or, or attack their fathers and mothers. That's the fifth. Murderers, that's the sixth. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, that's the, the seventh. And slavers, that's interesting. Because that, that's in the place of the eighth commandment. And then liars and perjurers, that's the ninth. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that's the tenth commandment. So a list of the commandments here. And perhaps you're visiting with us this morning, and perhaps you're a homosexual or a lesbian, and you're thinking to yourself, why, why, are, you, why are you saying this? Why are you putting me in a, a list of very unpleasant words here? Murderers, and liars, and, and slavers, and then you're putting homosexuals right in the middle of that. Why are you being so hurtful? Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, and you're a homosexual or a lesbian, First of all, I want to say welcome. We're glad you're with us under the preaching of the Word of God. Secondly, I want to say to you that we love you and that we value you. You are a person who is made in the image of God. You were created to worship God and to live for Him, and we value you. And thirdly, I would say this is not what we're saying. This is what God's saying. This list, which lists the fifth through to the tenth commandments, is the will of God. And what God says, this is not what we're saying, what God says is when we do not live according to his commandments, when we do not live the way he created life to be, the way he created the universe to work, the way he created marriage to work and sexuality to work, then we will hurt ourselves and we will hurt others. Then we will not have happiness or peace. And so because we love you, we want to tell you this, that these things in this list describe who we are. We are sinners against the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth and all the commandments of God. And we're not saying we're really good and why won't you become like us? That's not what we're saying. We're saying that Christ is good. And that he has had mercy on us. He's washed away our sins, which are great. And we're calling you to come to Christ. We're calling you to seek life in him. Because there's nothing more important. There's no identity which is more important than having your identity in Christ. It's the best thing in the world. And it's the only way to be truly happy, to truly live. And so we invite you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the, the word enslavers there, which is in the place of the Eighth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. It's interesting that Paul uses this word 
in the place of the Eighth Commandment. And slavers, of course, would be people at that time who would kidnap people and sell them into slavery, and so they would profit by taking away the freedom of others. And this word would describe not just kidnappers and people that put people into slavery, but it would describe anybody who steals people's life, people's liberty, people's innocence and joy. In one way, abusers not only sin against many of the other commandments, but they also sin against the Eighth Commandment when they steal the innocence of childhood, and they steal the joy and the emotional stability of their wives as they abuse them. Abuse and all kinds of taking away from others is condemned by the law of God. So here's this list, this list of commandments. And as I just mentioned, this is us. This is who we are. This is who we were outside of Christ. Take Christ away, we're lost. This is who we are. And that's why Paul is so insistent. Timothy, you've got to keep the focus on Christ. You have to preach Christ. He is our hope and our only hope. And so they're teaching stuff, says Paul, against sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 10 there. All this stuff is, is, is against sound doctrine. And this is important because the opposite of sound doctrine is not bad doctrine necessarily, but the opposite of sound doctrine in this context is a wicked, sinful life. Doctrine, sound doctrine is not just theological trivia, getting all the right things to say in your head. But sound doctrine leads to right thinking, which leads to right living, which leads to joy and life in Christ. And when we don't hold on to sound doctrine, it leads us into unholiness, misery, and death. Sound doctrine is all the teaching, look at verse 11, which is in accordance with the good news of the glory of the blessed God. And so that's why this church spends so much time in the worship service on reading the scriptures and preaching the scriptures. Because sound doctrine brings life, joy, peace, and glory in God through Christ. When we don't have sound doctrine, we wander all over the place. We get lost in our sins. We get confused. We stumble. And in the darkness of our sin, we don't even know what we're stumbling over. And you know, believer, that every time you stop reading the Scriptures, every time you stop meditating on the Scriptures, every time you are not paying attention to the Word preached or or you're neglecting the Word of God and the sacraments, you're despising them by staying away from them. You know how the devil has an easier time leading you by the nose down the ways of death and suffering and brokenness. So when people are living against sound doctrine, they need the law to warn them. But when the congregation is in Christ, is washed in Christ's blood, when the love of God is poured into our hearts, when we are the temple of the Holy Spirit himself, when we are living in the freedom for which Christ the Son has set us free, 
then we don't need people running around with the law hitting us over the head with it time and time again. We don't need to hear all this babbling about you got to do this, you got to do that. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't think this. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. That's not all we need. We need the preaching of Christ. And Paul uses himself as an example in the next verses, verses 12 through to 17. He says, look, I was living that life. I was living outside of Christ. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent, an insolent opponent. I was without God and without hope in the world. But look at verse 13. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, I've often chewed on this text and thought about it because ignorance of the law is no excuse. Does Paul seem to be excusing himself while I was doing all this bad stuff? I was persecuting the church of God. I was killing people and putting them in prison for believing in Jesus, but I, I didn't know, so I, it, I'm not guilty for it. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying, look, I didn't know the truth yet, and so I was living in accordance with the lie that I believed. And that's different than knowing the truth and then deliberately living against it. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. When you know the truth, when you've heard the word of God, when you've come face to face with Jesus and the gospel, when you've tasted even the things of the spirit, then you turn your back on it and you embrace the world and you give yourself over to your lusts and you deliberately suppress the truth that you know that you've tasted, that you've experienced, then after a certain amount of time, you're in danger of committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. Paul wasn't in that situation. He had never come to know Christ. He was an Old Testament Jewish believer. He thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting the church of, of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus came to him first with the law. The Lord Jesus said to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord said, stop. Why are you doing what is wrong? And then the Lord sent him to Damascus, and then he was taught the gospel, and he, and he discovered the overflowing grace of our Lord. Look at verse 14. The, overgrow, the overflowing grace of our Lord with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He discovered the gospel. And Paul says, listen, Timothy, you got to teach people this. This is trustworthy, verse 15, deserving of full acceptance. It's kind of a stock phrase. Paul's giving a signal here that he's kind of quoting the, the catechism of that time. Look, this is one of the things, one of the truths that we hold to be true and that we hold dear. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of them. doesn't mean to say that Paul says he's the worst sinner to exist in the history of the world. What it means is that when he thinks of sinners, he doesn't go looking around at the people in the church. He doesn't go looking around at other people. He looks at himself. He says, wow, I've got enough things to change in my life. I'm not going to start judging others. I'm the foremost. He stuck out as one of the greater sinners as he persecuted and hounded the, the children of God. And God took that wicked enemy of the cross, the one who hurt God's children, 
And God showed his glory. Look at verse 16. He received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. One of the reasons God converted Paul was to tell you that no matter what you have done, no matter how badly you have sinned against God and against your fellow man, you are not unredeemable. You are not beyond the power of God to save and to change. Your heart, your life, your marriage, your family, your relationships can be healed and restored by the power of God working through the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And Paul is an example of the miracles that the Holy Spirit can work. Changing a a murderous persecutor of the church and one of the foremost apostles of the gospel. And so when Paul reflects on that, he breaks down into worship. You know, when we, when we love sound doctrine, that leads to a life of holiness and faith that gives us a good conscience as we hold on to Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. And it just drives us to Constant doxology, constant worship, constant praise. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how difficult things are, no matter if we're lying in our hospital bed, no matter if we're in constant pain, when we know Christ and we know what he has done for us and we know who we are outside of him, then it doesn't matter what's going on and how hard life is, we break out into praise and worship to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's the confession of the believer. So Paul's wrapping up here, verse 18. He says, Timothy, I'm giving you this charge, this order, by order of the king of kings. You got to do this. And you got to do this in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. By them, you must wage the good warfare. What are those prophecies? Well, back when Timothy was ministering as a missionary in the area of Ephesus, he didn't have the New Testament yet. He had the Old Testament, didn't have the New Testament. So, the New Testament was this letter that he got from Paul. And he had some other letters as well. The church at Ephesus had a copy of the letter that Paul had sent from Rome when he was in jail. And so there were these written pieces of the word of God floating around. And, and, and there were also words of God spoken through prophets because the New Testament wasn't finished yet. And so God would still sometimes speak words through prophecies, spoken prophecies. And so Paul says, whatever the word of God has said to you, Timothy, it's in and through and by the power of that word that you must do your work, that you must fight your fight, that you must wage your good warfare. How? Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Holding on to faith, why? Because it connects you to the Lord Jesus. It's all about him. 
holding on to a good conscience. Why? Because in Jesus, you are righteous. In Jesus, you are just. In Jesus, you are not condemned. So hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the word. Hold on to Jesus. And this is a matter of life and death, brothers and sisters. Because what happens when you don't? What happens when Timothy doesn't do this? What happens when the church doesn't hold on to Christ as he comes to us in the gospel? What happens? Well, look at verse 19, the middle of it there. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. If you don't keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, if you don't long for Jesus, if you don't long to hear the words of the master, the words of the good shepherd, if you don't meditate on them, if you don't study them, if you don't read them and reread them and sing them and store them up in your heart, if you don't keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, if we, church of God, if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, then everything will go wrong. We get caught up in all kinds of arguments, all kinds of discussions, and we will make shipwreck of our faith. We'll hit the rocks of unbelief, of doubt, of anger, of sin, and division, and factiousness. And all will go down. We'll all go down together. What holds the church together is not political agreement. It's not that we all have the same perspective on the hot-button topics of the day. It's not that we all have the same reactions and the same actions and the same practices and the same customs and the same way of doing things and saying things and looking at things. What holds the church together is Christ. And if we lose sight of him, we sink and we fall apart and we lose connection to the body when we lose connection to the head. That's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. They got all wound up with their little ideas and their thoughts and their discussions and their dissensions. And Paul had to cut them off from the church. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he didn't just do that by himself, but the gathered church would meet and someone would be excommunicated from the body of Christ. Handed over to Satan. Sounds scary, doesn't it? What it means is, listen, the church is the kingdom of light. The church is the kingdom of God. And when you turn away from God, and when you turn away from Christ, and when you turn away from the light, when you choose to live and to think and to believe in the darkness, there is no place for you in the body. You've got to go back to where you came from, the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Satan. But look at the words of hope there at the end of our chapter. He doesn't put a full stop after whom I have handed over to Satan, period. He doesn't do that. He says a few more words, that they may learn not to blaspheme. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a similar thing happens, where someone's handed over to Satan for living in sin, Paul says, and move to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, the goal of all church discipline. The goal of all church discipline, even excommunication itself, is the longing of the church that this sinner may be restored, may turn from his sins, and may flee to Christ. And there's always that hope, and there's always that prayer. 
So brothers and sisters, Paul reminds Timothy to teach the church that there's only one hope. Look at verse one, Christ Jesus, our hope. Not our thoughts, not our solutions, not our being correct. We don't fight for ourselves. We fight for Christ. We fight for the gospel. We, we fight to, to think like him and to be like him and to act like him. We don't fight so that people be like me and think like me and act like me. So brother and sister, don't get caught up in yourself. Don't get caught up in your ideas. Don't fight for your side in discussions in the church or in social media controversies or in points of, of church order that we're debating. Don't fight for yourself. Don't fight for your point of view. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. Who am I in Christ? What has Christ done for me? What is Christ doing in me? How can I grow in Christ? How can others see Christ in me? That is worth fighting for. And so, as we come to the end of our sermon, we turn to hymn 53, and we sing. We sing our response to the gospel. Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Let's ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Lord of armies. Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. In him, we are more than conquerors. Look to Christ. Amen.